we'd like to thank you, our valued listeners, for your interest and support over the past 18-odd months. What was initially FX Radio has grown exponentially to include not just our podcasts in FX Medicine Podcast Central on iTunes, but we'd like to also introduce the recently launched FX Medicine website. This is our reservoir of resources, research and educational content for complementary medicine. Come and be a part of the community at fxmedicine.com.au. FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And joining me in the studio today is Dr. Mark Donohoe, who graduated in 1980 from Sydney University, worked around the Central Coast, and this is where his interest in integrative medicine sparked, because patients just weren't fitting into the boxes of diagnoses and treatments. He's one of the fathers of integrative medicine in Australia, and he's been the vanguard for many patients' health throughout his career, and I welcome you once again to a new edition of FX Medicine, Mark. It's great to be back in the new year, and uh, being the father of anything worries me. <laughs> I right? was but, going to say grandfather, uh, but grandfather. I thought I left you off the hook. <laughs> no, no I, like to, I like to be the youngster still learning. Being a father just reminds me of how old I'm getting. <laughs> so I don't, I don't want to age. I want to age disgracefully. I, well, I, no, age disgracefully. Yes. Um, and I totally agree with you about uh, keeping on learning. Mm. I've often said that the day you stop learning, the day that you think you know everything about a subject, hang up your shingle and go and do something else because mm. you've just turned arrogant. Mm. Yeah. Um, everything, everything, no matter how far you get into it, a new point arises from which an expanded universe as big as the one you thought you just got hold of yeah, it just develops in front of you and life is ultimately extraordinarily fascinating. No matter what you know, what you don't know exceeds it by orders of magnitude. It's just brilliant. And talking about universes, we'll be talking about one within and that's the gut microbiome and other things mm. that l- reside in and on us. So first, what's new in the area of the gut microbiota? Well, nothing's new. It's what we're discovering about it that's <laughs> yes. new. So that, this is, you know, for, for many people, the surprise is when you read about the microbiome, it was apparently discovered in 2004. Yeah. No <laughs> one knew that, we anything about that. And in integrative and complementary and naturopathic medicine, I think there was a fair idea that something was down in the bowel hmm. even before 2004. Hmm. But that's when the money started turning into it. And in a typical medical way, the money turns to, hey, there are bacteria down there and we're going to call the microbiome the bacterial infestation of humans. And so the study of that, laudable as it is, is only a fraction of the story. And so great to have medicine, research, billions of dollars saying, hey, this was right all along and we've got to pay attention to the microbes in health and disease, birth and death, and all, all, all interesting areas. But it's infinitely more complex than that. And now the call is let's extend that to the virome, to the bacteriophage, to the uh, candida and fungi. And so the full ecology of the gut, of the nose, of the mouth, of everywhere around the body is not simply the bacteria, 
It's the entire microbial universe, and it's a lot richer than we ever thought. And uh, indeed, Jeff Leach from the Human Food Project um, spent a year in Africa living with the Hadza tribe, trying mm. to change his microbiome mm. and make it more diverse. It was interesting the results he got from that, despite him living off the land and living with the Hadza. Um, it is an interesting, if not gruesome, story about how they prepare food. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> but but um, you know what? What got me is at one at a later stage, you know, he's drinking out of a puddle on a rock, mm. on a rock face, on a rock cliff, and, um, you know, he's saying the baboon shit laden puddle, mm. which is actually a source of, of a whole diverse array of plant-based or mainly plant-based microbiota. Yeah. And by that stage, it wasn't really an issue to him. He also did some very interesting thing with a turkey baster. Yes, yes, I do recall. <laughs> to increase the diversity. <laughs> That's out of the realms of normality for most people. Turkey Cert baster always brings up the wrong feeling, doesn't it? The, the, the basting device is just yeah, has so many uses. For anybody who's interested in that, just look up Jeff Leach, J-E-F-F, Leach, L-E-A-C-H, Human Food Project, and go for nuts mm. because it's a very interesting few articles that he's written. But for most people, we need to increase the diversity of our microbiota. They've been wiped out by too many courses of antibiotics, which we're misusing and poor food choices that we make during our yeah. lifestyle from marketing excesses, if you like, and convenience. But we need to improve the plants that we need mm. to intake. We need to look after our gut microbiome. What sort of things do you recommend to patients to say, hey, we need to change this long-term? I'd, I'd argue we haven't wiped them out. What we've done is diminish diversity of the microbial universe in there, that what we've done by monocultures yeah. of what we eat as foods, yes. the high sugar or any fad diet, if you do the same diet day in, day out, you breed up one group at the expense of another. And I'm, I'm a big fan of the biodiversity being expanded by a yearly cycle, the yearly cycle of summer, winter, autumn, spring, and the various foods that are available. Sometimes sugars are high on the list. You get the, you know, the firmicutes, which I love to call them firmicutes. Um, <laughs> firmicutes. Yeah, firmicutes, <laughs> but I think they're firmicutes. You get the, you get the breeding up of particular energy harvesting things preparing for winter. Right, so that when sugars are available, you breed up fat being laid down at that time, absolutely ideal because winter will be coming, you know, three to four to five to six months later, you build it up, you have stores for winter. What happens when the sugars never stop is you never have your winter. And I, you know, I'm, again, I say this all the time, there is no winter in a Woolworths. There is no winter in a Coles. That is the same food year round and we import it from various parts of the world and we all have our favourites and we go for those. So the stunting of the diversity of the microbes, yes, we focus on the bacteria because that's where all the money is right at the moment, but there is a whole culture of bacteriophages, virus, bacteria, fungi, and parasites. Parasites are mm. normally around there. It's mm. not, uh, they're not all pathogenic. What they do is they have their life cycle and in a normal variety and a normal um, biodiversity of the gut, they all stay in a kind of balance. What you talked about with the puddles, you know, our microbes do 
identify with and have lots of links to soil bacteria, soil microbes, even our immune cells look very much like the amoebae and the macrophages look a lot like the bugs that are like the big bugs that are in the soil. So in a very deep sense, we've got soil within. Yes. <laughs> we soil ourselves. <laughs> um, but we've got soil within and that is a garden, that is an environment which is very, very analogous to an external world, uh, of trees and mm. forests and plants and fungi. And they're not pathogens and they're not good and they're not evil. They are just a bunch of things that work their way out. They maintain a diversity and if we support that diversity, then at the macro level, we can do stuff with our diet which just feeds the bugs that we need. Now, at the micro, at the individual level, there's a whole different world going on. Some of us react particularly badly. You know, we are going to put on a lot of weight and put on a lot of kilos with the same bugs that another person will not put on those kilos with. So there's something about the individuals, poor methylators, good methylators, people with strong inflammatory responses to certain microbes for whom a particular microbe is terribly bad news. For others, it's innocuous. Mm. It has absolutely no effect at all. This whole idea of a mycobiome is fascinating because we do have people for whom various fungi, candida, trichophyton, um, some of the aspergillus and the like, yep. create a stink for their immune systems and the immune system goes off into a battle to the death. Whereas candida, many of these bugs are absolutely normal stock standard, should be there, mm. and we don't know why it's one group go off rather than the other. We do know that if we give broad-spectrum antibiotics, that we push more people to the lower bacterial diversity and the higher likelihood that the mycoses, the fungi, will have a bit of a better time. Yeah. We know that the oral contraceptive pill, of all, of all the odd things in the universe, what's the growth factor, a number one growth factor for candida albicans? It's estrogen. Yeah. Human estrogen, that gives you an idea of the intimacy of the relationship between humans and the microbes. And if all you get is the occasional bit of vaginal thrush after antibiotics, that's not world-changing. But if you've got the genetics that pick a fight with microbes and you starve those microbes and the fungi try to invade and put their little mycelia in across the uh, gut barrier, then all hell breaks loose. Their immunology lets fly and you end up with abnormal liver function tests, leaky gut and the gut then becomes your enemy. And so identifying individual susceptibility is important. Identifying variety of diet to maintain a turnover, a churn of those microbes so that the one group is dominant at one time of the year and, and then others move in later. And maintaining the concept of biodiversity, what we're learning of don't stuff up a planet, maintain biodiversity, don't kill off all the species but humans because there's nothing left then. Same applies to the gut. We want diversity. We don't want just a good microbe. We don't want a pill with something that, you know, cures diabetes and then causes cardiac disease or some other problem later on. I, I think many women, many women would disagree with you that um, a bout of thrush is not necessarily world changing. <laughs> when they look at you with that glazed look yeah, with an itch they can't scratch. Yes. But, but um, the interesting point that that I take from that that you've just sparked is I used to commonly treat many people with zinc and particularly if they had immune deficiencies. And I remember this group of women, it, it wasn't something I assayed, it was just something I noticed, but this group um, didn't respond well and they just kept on coming in despite using zinc and probiotics, um, a certain hero strain. Mm -hmm. And this is where I changed about the hero strains, but I used back then a hero strain and 
it didn't work. They got recurrent thrush, current, mm. recurrent, current. And in this group, I finally went, duh, what am I doing? And looked at iron. Mm. And we, it, although iron is the one mineral that I'm extremely cautious with and, and won't supplement without testing, um, this group of ladies were all iron deficient. Right. And we corrected their iron and their thrush just disappeared. Mm. <laughs> it was it was quite magical and magical for them. Yes. Um, the other thing, though, that you talk about that sparked my interest in is I should have also been looking at oestrogen as a cyclical thing, particularly for those ladies that, are, that have recurrent yes. cyclical type bouts of, you know, even if it might be um, related to sexual intercourse, is it timed around a high oestrogen part of their cycle um, and I haven't I've never looked into that yeah well the bug the bug definitely thrives with human estrogen and it thrives pretty well with the synthetic estrogens as well so it's it's got receptors that for it is a it's a signal for growth and multiplication rapid multiplication of it people will describe their thrush as you know as you said extraordinarily disabling and painful vaginal thrush is something i thankfully never will experience but i can imagine that that's a perfect environment that you've got the secretions a nice warm place and you've got sexual activity which sparks the kind of growth end and the irritation, irritation yeah. of the mucosal wall mm. so you've got the perfect storm there if you're on the pill that makes it just a double problem. Yeah. So now you've got an attempt. And to you've use got an iron deficiency. Yes. <laughs> now, the iron, the iron deficiency is interesting because, as you say, we're all a little bit dubious of iron. Um, what does the body do when it's got inflammation? It pushes all the iron into ferritin. So you see the rise ferritin levels and the low iron levels with the body starving the microbe, supposedly, and keeping things low. But iron deficiency gets to a point for females where it is it causes defective mm. immunity. Mm. And the balance between bugs and us is much more complex. I know that there's bacterial growth with iron overload. I don't even know, honestly, whether fungi thrive in a high or low iron environment. But from what you've just said, it sounds as though the iron supplementation at least satisfied the bug. Yeah. There's something else that I'd say, and that is we have in, line, um, in mind there's an overgrowth of something. That's right, right. yeah. The overgrowth isn't necessarily the case. If you stress an organism, right, if you stress candida by taking out something that's essential for its growth, mm. a it fungus is quite, yes, <laughs> it is quite capable of going and looking elsewhere mm. for what it needs. Yep. And so often the hardest thing to tell people is if I treat your candida, if I try and do something about your fungi, if I starve your bugs, it's going to go berserk and you are going to suffer. Biotin is a growth factor. It makes for happy candida. We use biotin to treat because symptomatically it does relieve some of the candidiasis and some of the gastrointestinal symptoms, mm. but it's not because it kills the bug. Candida, in fact, is a happy camper and it goes back to a nice yeast form and behaves itself, re-enters the community. And what we do as doctors is we give nice statin, we give powerful drugs that put enormous stress on the gut microbes who then go looking for shelter. Mm. And when they go looking for shelter, our immune system is on the other side of that mucosal barrier saying, no, don't come here. And then we escalate things out of control. We call it a Herxheimer reaction. I'm convinced it's not a Herxheimer mm -hmm. reaction. Yeah. I'm convinced it is simply a bug looking to serve its own purposes 
we don't want it there, but what we're doing is hitting it with a stick instead of trying to re- regain a balance, which is going to be a better long-term outcome. And I think naturopathic practitioners really need to re re-realize their roots, if you like, about natural medicine. I think too many times we try and be little doctors and I th- leave, the, leave that to doctors. <laughs> leave medicine to doctors. Um, this is where I think the beauty of natural medicine is about supporting the body's natural defences or natural mechanisms to help rebalance things. And I don't believe in magical stuff, but I do believe that there's, you know, a basis for this whole balance. That That's our immunity. That's our health. That's our nutriture. Yes. And they, they and have if better we t- tools too. Yeah. I mean, doctors have limited tools. We've got four sticks and two guns and a cannon (laughs) and we are going to treat everything as though one of those things will work and do it. And I'm in this category over and over. I fall back. Every trained doctor falls back into, yeah, but secretly in my quiver back here, I've got something that Mm. will really hammer this. And sometimes you need that. Sometimes you may, but we return to form. And I see naturopaths and herbalists and everybody making that move to, I know how to do this better than the doctor does with their tools. And so it becomes almost like naturopathy is mini medicine trying to beat things up. It's almost the medicine's invaded the mindset of not balance, but we can treat Mm. X. Mm. We can treat heart disease. We can treat thrush. We can treat this. And the balance concept, the idea of using, say, you know, caprylic acid and the coconut oils and the, and, uh, various food and other dietary sources, not to wipe out everything, which is the medical approach, but to re-establish a balance, keep the organism in check, and in in effect make the organism a happier organism with no need to invade, with no need to get into a fight with us or other microbes around there. Number one on that list is avoid unnecessary antibiotics because you do two things then. You don't develop antibiotic-resistant bugs all around the place and you don't provide an opportunity for fungi and other organisms to just go berserk. Mm. Once they've gone berserk, a good example for this is in the sinuses. Early on, people get recurrent sinusitis, antibiotics work like magic. Sinus problem is gone, everything appears to be good. As After as little as four courses of antibiotics... The sinus treatment with antibiotics is partially successful but never resolves. Because it's not bacteria anymore. Yes. And uh, Johns Hopkins and Mayo both identified this as four courses of antibiotics. You now have a fungal web. Mm. Is it an invasive organism? No. But they used amphoterus and, and, you know, did the normal medical thing and said if you wipe it out, now you get back to normal microbial balances because you've taken out all the fungi. That caused a stink. ENT people said no because the antibiotics are still working. But the antibiotics work because bacteria become invasive. Mm. The systemic antibiotics get a chance to kill those. The fungi maintains a soft web-like structure over the surface there. It's not as invasive, but it's perpetual. And can form accretions, which are really fantastic to take out. There's some beautiful YouTube clips. Yes. Yeah, I know. The the balance between us and our microbes. That's right. The balance between us and our microbes is a literal, you know, lesional type thing. People look up the nose and you can see the thing, but it is at a, it's not at an invasive level. What doctors are used to is, and I see this, I do actually do tests called anti-candida IgA and IgGs. Mm-hmm. The immunoglobulin A, immunoglobulin G tend to give you an idea of is this current, is it invasive, how's the body fighting it? We see these antibodies go sky high after trauma in HIV people. 
when we've wiped out all the competing microbes because of the danger to the host and now candida becomes a massive and life-threatening mm. condition. What happens with other people is over 20 years, they develop the same very high antibodies. It's never been invasive. It's been slow, gradual, and that right. cold war ends up having the same inflammatory type of response as a person who's just had major trauma. And that's the argument, you know, that you'll find the orthodox medical profession saying candidate's not a problem because we see it killing people in trauma, in HIV. That's where the problem is. Mm. Anything else is, you know, just trivial. It's compared to microbe, other microbes, it's just not an issue. It is mm. if that's your 30-year issue or your 20-year yeah, issue. Yeah, that's right. A little bit of irritation every day is like termites in a house. It's not a wrecking ball. It's a termite-type destruction and the inflammatory response creeps up until it reaches a threshold. Then the patients come and we all focus on the candida and call it candida as if it's a problem. Oh, a little hint here. I've heard a, a, a great opponent of uh, integrative medicine say, you can pick the people who are crazy because they call it candida, mm. whereas a real doctor calls it candida. candida. <laughs> so don't pay attention to people who call it candida because that means they've touched a naturopath somewhere along their line. If they call it candida, they are far more credible. <laughs> it's the same as leaky gut versus yeah, increased gut permeability. Right. You have no leaky gut. There's no such thing. This is increased gut permeability. That's the doctor's terminology. So the microbiome um, is the bacteria. Well, actually, no, the microbiome is really the whole lot yes. of the genetic material in our guts. The non-human geni genetic material. Then we've got the microbiota, and we're well-versed in that, even if we want to use, I think, 14 um, species are listed on the TGA. So we've only got 14 out of the hundreds that inhabit our gut to choose from. Yeah. And I think a, a far more important way, at least for ongoing issues and, and maintenance, is food. And we really need to yeah. concentrate on plant materials especially. But I, I absolutely agree with you now. I mean, I've been a big fan of probiotics. When, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything is treated as though it's a nail. And when the thinking was we can establish the bacteria by brute force, just dump large numbers, we probably should have realised that when you're talking two, three, four, five orders of magnitude less, what you can take in orally just doesn't even compete with the numbers already there. We probably should have thought that the critical <clears throat> factor is what do they grow on? <clears throat> so the idea of, you know, seed and feed, the feeding part of it is becoming increasingly important. And remember Mike Ash last year with the symposium. Mm, that's right, with the, the apple recipe. Yeah, the apple recipe has transformed a lot of people in my practice. I felt embarrassed about even saying it. You know, how low tech can you get? Mm. But people love to prepare food. It gets them thinking about, well, I'll be in the kitchen. I'll produce something that's interesting and tasty. And despite a couple of severe adverse reactions to the apple, the rest of the year has proven very, very successful. And Way it's such more. a simple thing yeah. to change. That goes totally against the FODMAP um, yes, issue, um, FODMAP diet. But I think even Sue Shepherd will agree, you know, it's it's not relevant for everybody and it's not an, an a no FODMAP diet. It's mm. a low FODMAP diet. Yeah. And this is the thing that I think people have gone into their switch mentality about. We have a relationship with diets, which is there's good diets mm. and bad diets. Yeah. There are temporarily diets which work to establish something and then you get off them. And I or might, incorporate them. Or incorporate yeah. them. That's right. Or adapt to them. But the number of people that I see, a part of my practice now, a big part of my practice, is to see people on highly, highly restricted diets. 
those highly restricted diets worked initially. Then they stopped working a bit and the mm. people restrict it more and then it works a bit more and then they paint it into a corner and those, the FODMAP believers and the salicylate believers... Anti-candida that diets. Right. They can't shocking. get out of the highly restricted diet. You have to have diversity of food to have diversity of microbes. And the, these people, they end up, you know, Mike Ash calls them the mashed potato and peas brigade. Mm. They end up on on such a restrictive diet because they quote unquote react to everything now yes. and they're emaciated. They're now nutritionally devoid, not yes. just deficit. And that's where you go back and you try and reestablish gut ecology, diversity, the stuff that we learned last year of how do you moderate job. immunology of the gut mm. so that that battle diminishes. And in those circumstances, doing stuff to diminish the impact of fungi, to diminish the impact of certain types of microbes, they're all great things to do. But we have, I think, a whole generation of learning to do. Oddly, it's the relearning of what was naturopathic generations ago. Mm. And I'm always amazed that medicine comes around to a new technical understanding of something that was known. And what you're doing is really dotting the I's, crossing the T's and moving billions of dollars into research that realistically is done at the coalface by naturopathic practitioners and has been for centuries. Maybe we shouldn't call it naturopathic diet. Maybe we should call it grandma diet. Grandma diet, <laughs> yes. Well, we, we do keep coming back to the grandmas. And yesterday was yet another one in my practice of the mother with the daughter there saying, the daughter pointing out, hey, mum has been trying to feed me stewed apples for <laughs> years. I, I just thought that was rubbish. Yeah. And so there is a, a knowledge of the things that work at the visceral level, which is day-to-day -day knowledge of mothers in raising babies. There's then the multi-billion dollar extravaganzas of medicine taking that on and proving it's true and adding not necessarily much along the way. I'd, I would caution always about going after the microbe unless you can identify a clostridium or a potential, you know, significant major overgrowth and culture the thing. I think the job for the gut and the microbiome and the bacteriophages and the viruses and the fungi is to admit that this is a complexity that we can't even grasp. We do not understand it yet, but we're building towards that. And while we do that, building diversity, building the individual's ability to resist and to manage a diet which is identified for them and you work towards that end is a much better idea than waiting for the magic bullet to appear of that one microbe which in a capsule will stop diabetes mm -hmm. or stop heart disease or stop anything else. The magic often happens along the way. There is something for given individuals which is just going to work for them and work like magic. Saccharomyces boulardii is not a bad example mm -hmm. of something that mm -hmm. can transform people in a relatively short period of time. And if you're going, you know, if you have And that, guess where it was first isolated from? Mangosteen. Mangosteen, um, peels. really? Yeah, mangosteen and lychee well, fruit skins. You can fall back on some of those those goodies. Some people react to Saccharomyces. And you've got to be careful with even that. So it's there's no one right diet, there's no one right bacterium, but there is a concept of building diversity of food and building diversity of a seasonality to what we eat. And it's hard work, but it's really, really worthwhile. Okay, so we spoke before about the FODMAP diet and, you know, its usefulness and its potential not usefulness. There's a new study that's very interesting. FODMAP diet works, but only as good as a traditional IBS diet. Mm. Now, I wonder if this is one of those pendulum studies where basically we're finding the place of the FODMAP diet. That's not to say there isn't yeah. a use for it um, because, I mean, I remember doctors saying high fibre, including wheat, and yes. a lot of people with IBS did not do well on that. Mm. 
fibre, they tended to do well, particularly in constipation, but not so much with diarrhoea-associated IBS. Yeah. Tell me more. Diets work when you restrict, full stop. When you start restricting, and a lot of uh, what we now see with the traditional, so-called traditional IBS advice, has moved its way gradually towards reduction of grains, reduction of excessive fibre, and there's a sensible conversion, which is don't feed microbes a lot of things which can act as though they are sugars. Don't do things that ferment easily in the gut because you've got fermenting organisms there and it's a good first start. It's not your lifelong diet necessarily. So I come back to what's a seasonal diet? A FODMAP diet is not a seasonal diet. It's a restrictive diet of a particular type and a particular group of polyphenols and of fermentable agents and it's a really good idea to start and a lot of good work got done on it. The irritable bowel syndrome treatment of the gastroenterologist has similarly moved from just take lots of fibre and make it, you know, make it bran and has moved away from that because it was found not to be effective. Mm. We just thought, honestly, medical word for nutty person is irritable bowel syndrome or it was many mm. years mm. ago. And now we're realising, no, this is not right. The gut reactivity to particular molecules in the food, when it becomes stable for one group of people, they get perpetually the irritable bowel syndrome. And so I think that there's a convergence of the two. And when you read what's a good IBS diet, the traditional orthodox gastroenterologists are moving towards something which is not that dissimilar to a type of FODMAP diet anyway. It does include things, though, relaxation, you know, that you should take time, that you should be able to sit down and prepare for a meal. And so the orthodox medical care is moving around to that idea of have your meals, prepare your meals, eat fresh food, don't go to restaurants more than once or twice a week. So there are sensible pieces of advice which come back to almost naturopathic principles. And I'm, I'm encouraged not just by the fact that we're saying it's not purely FODMAP, and maybe breaking that religious-like belief that FODMAP is it and that's how all you have to do. And we're moving back to eat properly, prepare your meals, have a variety of foods in season, keep your, you know, don't dismiss fruits or vegetables or anything. Keep them as part of the diet, but don't dominate with sweets and don't dominate with, say, simple carbohydrates or high fibre. And you can keep all of those things in a balance for the majority of people. I think we're dealing with people where there is a higher degree of gluten reactivity. And so the studies that we've seen so far say the irritable bowel syndrome group, the genetic markers of gluten sensitivity are around about three to four times the rate that they are if it was just an average selection. So we are definitely seeing a group of people for whom gluten is a triggering immunological factor and you trigger the immunology of the gut you set off a little fire that you have to work really hard to put out, but then you still have to resume normality of a diet. You have to find what's normal for that individual. So my practice now is take the diets that give a bit of a signal, see what the signal is. What does it mean? Is this fungal? Is this bacterial? Is this something which you can do benefit with occasionally with antibiotics? So when you see massive streptococcal overgrowth, an antibiotic used to diminish the strep numbers can often work like magic for a person who says, I cannot take antibiotics. But you then have to plough in with the probiotics and a dietary advice, which is sensible on the other end of it. So I'm, I'm happy enough that FODMAP will take its place among the things that mm. we know to try. I despise the religious kind of devotion to a diet of, no, this is the right diet and it's not just for me, it's for everybody. Mm -hmm. And that is dangerous. There are plenty of people who get on the FODMAP diet. They're obviously worse 
but they know it's evidence-based. And indeed, the gluten-free diet. Um, Dr. Alessio Fasano will be speaking at the 2016 Bioceutical Symposium. And I was recently blessed with being able to interview him. Um, and he's going to be uh, elucidating on is gluten-free relevant for everybody? Yes. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that he's no. <laughs> you know, yes, it's more than what we thought, but that doesn't mean everybody. Yeah. Um, so the interesting thing now is who? Yes. I mean, I heard it on the radio today, a well-known nutritionist saying, no, it's only celiac. It is not only celiac. No. Celiac is the absolute perfect expression of gluten-heightened immune reactivity. It's an autoimmune disease. It's not a gluten disease, really, but it's gluten triggering an autoimmune process. And for every celiac, so out of the people with the genes for celiac disease, the DQ2 and DQ8, 10% of them will get celiac disease. But 60% of the women will get thyroid disease. So what should we pay attention to? Okay. Is it that you come off gluten so that your bowel functions or is it you come off gluten so that immunology settles and you don't start picking a fight with your own tissues later on? And I have a practice now where if I see thyroiditis, I am almost sure that these are people with the gluten reactivity, high gluten in childhood and that distortion of immunity in the early years of life for maybe that 10 or 20% of the population, that's really, really important. And I'm busting to hear Alessio. I, I, to me, I've read his papers, I've read his work, and he has led the way in understanding what the genetics, mm. the immunology, the gut permeability. If there's ever, ever a symposium that I'm hanging out for, it's this one this year. It is going to be great. And I've heard Dave Perlmutter before as well. What are the neurological consequences? Because we're talking gut. And then the vagus nerve and the immunology of the brain – there is a whole different world there of, and why is it that gluten reactivity on the gut can cause depression, can cause autism, can cause a whole range of neurological... Cause? Or well, be, a, be part of the puzzle? Be part of the... You're right. Nicely corrected. There's a component for neuroinflammation, which if you started in the gut, the two-way communication between brain and gut via the vagus nerve, that superhighway, yep. there is such a close association that it's hard to pick the difference between cause and contribution. But that you're right because you pull that out. If you just pull the gluten out, they don't get better. It's not like it caused it and therefore now we stop it. But it's a big, big step in, uh, in allowing recovery. That's actually a beautiful little saying, cause or contribution. Mm. I think we, we lose... We lose sight of the contribution part and we always look for, as you're saying, if everything, if you're a hammer, everything's a nail. We always want to hit something. So, And I get that, getting back to probiotics and, and the microbiota, um, if we see, let's say, you know, I've had practitioners say, I've done this test and this is low, or indeed, let's say bifidobacteria might be high, therefore bifidobacteria is bad. What? Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And it, they're treating it as a hammer rather than a signal yeah. that something else is going wrong, creating an environment where that's overgrowing rather than so hard, just looking though. at that organism. Yeah, it's so hard to have a consultation and disentangle all of those contributions. We all love to come to something which is the aha moment of if you do X, something is going to happen. And occasionally it does, but the 99% of the time, that's one little part of it. There was a guy called Bill Vader many years ago, and I, an analogy he had I use all the time, a boat with many anchors. 
if you've got four anchors and you pull one up and the boat doesn't move forward, you do not chuck that back. <laughs> right. And then pull up the next one to see which one made yes. it move. Yes. The job is to do the right thing over and over. This has been a, a hallmark of my practice that you do the right thing, nothing happens. You think, huh, what's the next? And the job is to go one after another, patiently pull in, how, get, how do you get the allergies? How do we get the diet? How do we get the, say, essential fatty acids? And then the last thing you do seems to have a magical effect and people become absolutely obsessed by the last thing. My, my caution there would be, as it's as long as you know that it's anchors holding up the boat. Mm. <laughs> if the boat has ploughed <laughs> into a rock at the other end <laughs> then and you're you pulling up anchors, then you need to do something different. Because yes. I do see sometimes people going, that didn't work, so I'll add something. Yes. Rather than reassessing and going, why didn't that mm. work? What, what am I doing that's not wrong? Am mm. I doing the right things and yeah. we should just progress? Or do I need to really reassess? My, my point with the anchors was there are some things that you do that you know to be right, so increasing development of the diet, getting sleep right. And it, and if getting sleep right and increasing diversity does not get the person better, you don't say, oh, bugger it, you know, have your lousy sleep and yeah. have, your, have your lousy <laughs> diet. Let's see what it is yeah. really. Let's just use some antibiotics. Yeah, and so the medical approach is much more there's a thing that causes another thing. Mm. And if we get that thing, you'll be non-sick. And the naturopathic version of that is we will keep on improving health until health wins. And improving health now extends to the microbiome and so that complexity is it's not just the human you're dealing with but their history, their birth, uh, how they ate in childhood, what they ate in childhood, what their susceptibilities are. And so this symposium should open up a lot of those, you know, those keys to what can you do? What can you reliably change in a person that does something good and very little harm and then move on and say, okay, one battle is won, what's the next battle? And when the final one is won... People feel dramatically better and are unwilling to accept that the two years of work that they did leading up to that was the reason that that person got mm. better. We're all paying attention to the final thing that worked. Yeah. And the final thing that worked is often trivial. You know, it's, you know, get a better night's sleep. It was the last it. piece yeah. in the puzzle. It was the last Makes thing. Makes the puzzle look it like was, a picture. Yeah, it does. So bringing that back into what we were talking earlier about IBS, um, people get caught up on a diet or something that is to do with the gut. But one of the major factors in irritable bowel syndrome is anxiety. Mm. And as you spoke about sleep, getting sleep right, mm. if you don't sleep right, you're much more likely to suffer from other sequelae, be they, be they mental like anxiety. Yeah. So even such things as getting a good night's sleep and let's say if you needed to, to use some herbs Yep. Or, or even some medications that might relieve anxiety. Mm. And therefore, you take away that trigger of many of these symptoms, therefore allowing the rest of the, yeah. the pieces don't to fall into place. Don't forget exercise. 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 Getting well. out, exercising, <clears throat> moving the body. You know, what we're understanding is the brain is reprogrammed by movement and by bending. physical activity and bending <laughs> and changing blood pressure and mm. doing all of those things. Diversity is... In every area of life, of not staying still and fossilising in place, that if you get into those diets and you get into a lifestyle which is has very little range, then the health of a person deteriorates irrespective of mm. what else you do. So even getting people back to minimal exercise, the idea of putting these little things on the wrist to count the steps and get people out, it works because people now think of exercise. Not that they do vast amounts, but they're finally back in the world of I'm expending energy, I am moving, I am actually getting, you know, 
protecting against sarcopenia but, later in life. But you know one thing that I, I see, and, and I'm not a whole expert here, I'm not a fitness fanatic, as mm. I, anybody in this studio can see, um, but one thing I, I see is people who want to get fit, quote unquote, people who want to lose weight, quote unquote, often think about walking or running, but they tend not to bend. They tend not to move their shoulders. Mm. It tends to be just this movement at a sort of, let's say, a minimal flexure of the hips and knees rather than bending over. Yeah. And particularly if it's got to do with your gut, you, we need to be bending, mm. i.e. if you're sitting down all day, get up and yes. bend over as much as you can. What about lifting your knees? Yeah. Um, just as far as you can for somebody who might be super obese or obese, yeah. even just that. Okay, it's a start. Yeah. Um, and getting a start. Even now we're recognising standing many times through the day, maybe even making a standing desk. There, there's a value to being vertical, changing the balance around. It improves balance later in life, which is one of the hallmarks. Loss of ability to maintain balance is senescence. So the body does respond very, very viscerally, literally viscerally, to standing, to balance, to bending, changing blood pressure. These things are the stressors on the body which it is meant to adapt to. And the more we shrink our universe, the more we stay inside, sit in the one spot, don't exercise. As you say, walking is a good thing, but it's not the only thing. No, no. But getting people to focus on that and thinking that it could affect their health or improve their health elsewhere is difficult. Getting people to sleep, people think, yeah, well, sleep is sleep. Sleep is oh, not no. sleep. Sleep is regenerative. And if you go to sleep and fall asleep within 15 minutes and wake refreshed in the morning, life is a very different experience to the alternatives. Refreshing sleep rather than sleep. Yeah. yeah. And, so and many people that, wake up just as tired as when they went to bed. That's right. And that, that requires that you do the other bits right. Sleep is both a cause and a consequence. And so if you get them to exercise, if their diet is improving, the sleep is really improved as well. So we've spoken about some of the many things that we can do for our gut and, and some of the good things that we can do for our gut, but there's also some very bad things we can do for our gut, and one of those is eat too much meat. Mm. Very interesting WHO, World Health Organization, guidelines now on yeah. that red meat is probably carcinogenic to humans, quote-unquote, a group 2A. But what I find from this recent study in The Lancet is um, the risk of salt. Yes, and it's processed meat. It's, forgive me. So red meat certainly a risk factor, but a worse risk factor is processed meats, the salamis, the cured meats, the hams, and worse still is salt. Mm. So salty processed red meats yes. <laughs> is like a perfect storm. Talk yeah. to me about this and the relevance for patients coming into your practice and taking it back to practical, yeah. making a sandwich for the kids, you know, a ham salad sandwich. What should we be looking at here? Poisons in balance are not poisons, right? Poisons at low dose. The, the thing that we have is goodies and baddies. This causes cancer, this doesn't cause cancer, this causes everything causes cancer, breathing especially. Not breathing causes more of a problem than breathing. Um, so we always have to, we live with our enemies all the time and our adaptation to our enemies is realistically going to be what keeps us healthy. I have no issue with the idea that preserved high nitrite beads and the high salts can be irritant and can anything that you do that irritates the surface membrane is eventually going to cause cancer. Mm. As Bruce Ames said years ago, mutant plus mito, mutagen plus mitogen equals cancer. Something that irritates and something that's growing eventually cancer cells emerge from that. 
should we focus too much on it? Well, you've got to balance that against, you know, the French group which said, okay, we increase microbiome diversity by going on to a kind of paleo-style diet for a six- to eight-week period. That improves something. So what we're good at is saying, oh, here's the risk. What is it? The risk of cancer. We're focused on that as though it's the only thing, whereas we know that increasing the meat for a period of time that is limited over a year, improves microbiome diversity, which diminishes inflammation. But, is, but Inflammation is, is a part of cancer as well. But is the paleo diet really high meat? Because when, Doesn't when have to be, does Lauren it? Cordain spoke and uh, spoke at oh, one of our symposium 2012, years ago, wasn't it? 12, yeah, yeah. Four, 13, um, and Pete Evans made the diet. Thank mm. you so much, Pete, for the the beautiful, sumptuous lunch we had. What mm. surprised me and what really opened my eyes to paleo was it wasn't largely meat. It yes. was largest in plant-based yeah. material. Yeah. Um, and when you take that back to how our foraging um, ancestors would have, you know, been on the chase for the, the holy grail of meat, they ain't plate. I ate plants along the way. However, remember, the world out there is interested in weight loss and the term paleo. Yeah. And these things go together when what they're doing is introducing high fat, high protein at the expense of almost everything else mm. to achieve a ketosis which diminishes the appetite and it plays out effectively in a different way. If you've got Pete Evans making your lunch every day, you don't have problems. Mm -mm, no. You, you are good. <laughs> it, but if you are taking the kind of uh, trash paper version of everybody should be eating tons of meat, everybody should be eating this way, the thing that patients come in with is, oh, I've lost weight by just eliminating everything that's useful in the way of fibre and plant-based stuff, and they take it as a licence to just eat a lot of meat. They're not really interpreting a paleo diet. What they're saying is, I'm going on a ketotic diet that makes me thinner, and that's got to be better for mm. me, and that is absolutely untrue. Mm. If you go on that as a basis of a diet, there is no doubt that kidney disease, yeah. inflammation, cancer, yeah. these are going to catch up with you. If you do it in the short term as a part of a, an annual diet and, and you rotate, <laughs> then those meats, they, they talk about 150 grams per week as being the threshold, but it's not 150 grams every single week. You can have long periods of time with very minimal meat and then have the variety which allows for meats in season. I believe that that's more likely a winter thing. That, mm. You know, you go to where yep. the plants are difficult to get, you go back to hunting rabbits and you have lean meat in season. Yep. And that is the gut resting, diversity increasing. And we know that from the two nature papers that you can increase gut biodiversity by just withdrawing all the common foods going on the meat and the fats and then getting off them. And getting off them is just as important as getting on them. So what period of, of dietary restriction was this? This was a six-week period. Six-week period? Yeah, a six-week period. Of high so meat intake. One group with half the biodiversity of the other group. The low biodiversity had high C-reactive protein, high inflammatory markers. They were more obese. What was done is six weeks of 30%, 33% kilojoule uh, reduction Red meats, fats at the expense of almost everything else. Uh, Non-absorbable fibre was allowed uh, ad libitum. And that showed a doubling of the diversity of the low diversity group. Oddly, for the high diversity group, it diminished diversity just a little bit. The healthiest people dropped down a little bit in diversity, but it was like a reset button being pressed. And then when they went back to their other diets, the ones with high biodiversity tended to stay high and the other ones gradually over about a six-month period dropped down. You said ad libitum 
non-digestible fibre? Is this yes. resistant starches, though, which it, would increase? They the... didn't, didn't make that clear, but it, what, what was clear is what they didn't want was a lot of carbohydrates right. going in at the time. So right. the absorbable carbohydrates was what they were... They yep. anticipated if you cut that back, the bugs that rely on the carbohydrates will diminish in dominance and other groups, other groups of bugs will grow up and then diversity would increase. So it was a hypothesis tested and shown to be right. Right. And this was in obese patients? This was in obese and inflamed patients, but it was a group where they just took a lot of people, said, who's the high diversity, who's the low diversity? Mm -hmm. When they looked at inflammation markers and obesity, the low diversity group had the higher C-reactive protein, the higher average weight. So the, the hypothesis was low biodiversity is what's bad for you. The, the hypothesis tested was what happens if we go for high protein, high fat, but not much in the way of absorbable carbohydrate. And then they just took the poop samples and said, okay, six weeks was the point where the two groups merged. Yep. They had now good biodiversity right across the range. Most importantly, obesity reduced in the low biodiversity group and C-reactive protein, a marker of inflammation reduced. So at, sim at its simplest, you could say there's a stressor on the gut. Yeah pull the food that it's so used to out of the way and you can settle the inflammation markers and settle the weight issue without going to the next five years of your life being devoted to a particular diet. It's I'll, quicker than we thought. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely have to read that paper and put it up yeah. on FX Medicine website. That's yeah. great. That's fantastic. It is. It takes the French to think of something like that. The French, <laughs> the French consider things But did they relax things, in the afternoon? Deeply. <laughs> they didn't mention the wine intake at any point there. <laughs> So we've spoken about IBS, we've spoken about dietary restrictions and red meat being bad. But as I said before, salt was a real huge um, risk factor, especially for gastric cancer. We have our high carb, high salt foods that are just a scourge of our society and that's chips. Tell me what you do with patients who are on these sorts of fast food, junk food type diets. How do you get them off when they've got that craving yeah. You know, they've got that embedded craving. Well, I, I see an odd group as well. Remember, I see people with fatigue syndromes and people who, for whom the chips are what they use to rescue themselves. The salt yep. provides the adrenal support and the blood pressure support. The carbohydrates is all they can do to yep. grab energy. And they're yep. kind of hand-to-mouth feeders the whole time. So it is, it's not a trivial issue for those guys. You cannot reduce salt rapidly. Their blood pressure just yeah, drops drop. lower and lower. You can't reduce the only energy source that they've got used to. That's an education process and getting off the salt, is a, it's easier when they're well than when they're sick. Right. Now, this may be very, very different from the average in the population. I think people go for chips and the fast food and the energy sources and the adrenals. I think they do that in order to get through days that are highly stressful and where they're going to work and commuting and getting little sleep and the like. I think the salt may be a consequence of that, that we go for salty, high-carbohydrate foods for quick energy source and to prop up adrenal responses and that when people get better, you still have to train them off it. It's not easy. I, the availability of these high-salt, high-carb um, foods translates all the way through to restaurants as well. Salt is used massively in restaurant food to make the food taste attractive, mm. get you coming back there. Mm. And so getting to home cooking where you control it is probably the hardest transition that I see. People who are used to getting their quick hits, it's hard to train them to make their meals, to, you know, to get fresh meat, to cook it, to cook the vegetables, to bake the vegetables, put a little bit of herbs on it, not over-salt it. 
I, I don't know the answer to that. I think once we're... Don't we salt them a, when you're cooking it. Salt yeah. it after if you need it. Yeah, but, yeah. but And keep the salt off the table. One of the one of the other yeah. tricks that it was taught was you can put a bit of uh, sodium ascorbate in half-half with your salt. Have a little bit of ascorbate. The ascorbate has a couple of values. One of them is improved iron absorption. So yep. for family members that have got difficulties with iron, yep. salting the food, if you put a bit of ascorbate on there, is useful. If you've got iodized salt, you might also start thinking of the salt as, what can it add that mm. I can remove the sodium from? But I, I wish I had an answer for that. I find people fall back into that, where's the quick hit? Where's the way I keep my head above water? And to me, the job there is the long-term one, which is, if your adrenal responses can be improved. That's an area where herbs and acupuncture and the like can do a lot to diminish salt craving. And if we can gradually encourage the gut to get back to a normal biodiversity there, then both of those cravings tend to go. What we need is for people to mobilise their energy stores from the fat that they keep. And so there's a tonne of energy. It's just all sitting in the mm. adipose tissue around yeah. the body. And the conversion, getting back to the idea of the catabolic conversion of bringing that energy back in and utilising the energy from our stores to have our winter where we actually use up the energy rather than just perpetually yep. store it. Yep. I think that's the goal long term. So as a dietary thing for salt eaters, salt cravers, if you, let's say, reduced sodium chloride... Mm. Um, to say 25%, yes. introduced potassium chloride to make that up to 50% and then added another half as yeah. sodium ascorbate yeah. powder. Where, where we're talking about subgram doses of all of them, mm. then you're down in the ballpark of what will be healthy for sodium intake. There are, I, I think there's a room for us to develop a different taste method if babies are brought up without the salt mm. and the young kids don't Absolutely. have... Um, canteens that are full of salted materials, you don't develop the taste for it. And I'm the worst of these. Like at university, I and others in our lectures would have to go during a lecture to get chips mm. or a donut or mm. something. We were fueling ourselves. We were learning to be doctors and learning nothing about what nutrition. We didn't think it strange that we were going for these high-hit foods to keep our head above water. But a lot of doctors got caffeine, salt and sugar, and that's how they became doctors. Yeah. Without them... They f their feeling is I never would have been there. Mm. I wish we had learned in year one what nutrition was and had done better in managing our own health. But you can't teach 18-year-olds who think they're the smartest <laughs> people in the world what to do. Dr. Mark Donohoe, thank you so much. Once again, i I got to say, I just love talking about you and your expertise, but the way that you round it out, you don't just think about the subject as a target. You think about its effects in, in, in a patient, in a family, in a community, and I really admire you for that. So, again... Thank you so much. Your flattery is greatly accepted. <laughs> I keep coming back, so obviously it's working, but it's great to talk about these things. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter.